Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from various locations around the city, powered by the Eastside Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation, now a content partner to the new BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every single week, so make sure you turn on those notifications. Today, we will continue our discussion on police and community relations in Detroit and some of the violent crime that we've seen recently in our neighborhoods. We'll also take a deep dive into the new Neighborhood Improvement Fund, which is the mayor's latest ask of Detroiters to clear out blighted neighborhoods, along with news that's making headlines. Joining us for the discussion today is Officer Danny Woods of the Detroit Police Department in the Chief's Office and is the LGBTQ Liaison Officer. Officer Woods, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Good morning and thank you for having me. Thank you. And also joining us is Chase Cantrell. Chase is what we would call a recovering attorney, writer, and executive director of Building Community Value. Chase Cantrell, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. It is great to be back. Good morning. <laughs> yes, second time's a charm, right? All right, y'all, it's time for fresh off the press news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, fresh off the press. The profit motive will remain. Our friend Alex Elsup writes guest column and medium. Um, he is speaking of a case that just was um, was um, decided by the Michigan Supreme Court. It is known as the Raffaelli LLC versus Oakland County case, and it's a case in which Raffaelli Yuri Raffaelli, who is an absentee landlord, owed eight dollars and forty-one cents in property taxes due to a miscalculation, and that swelled to two hundred eighty-five dollars eighty-one cents after interest and penalties. But he, um, the state the county ended up with a $24,000 profit for the sale of that home. And so it's a real estate taking. The um, Supreme Court said that that was not um, constitutional and that the state is going to have to compensate people whose um, properties were sold for uh, more than their tax debt because you cannot profit off of that. And um, you know that's a victory, right? Because it does not make sense for the state to profit off of people's losses in that way, um, and to charge people, um, you know, basically use isn't it like a usury clause or something like that that says that governments cannot, you know, have excessive taxation. Um, at any rate, um, what Alex, um, what? Um, else up found is that there, in Wayne County, interest and fees end up being the greater problem, not the sale of real estate beyond the what the tax debt that is owed. In fact, um, between 2013 and 2015, the um, county, Wayne County, earned $40,823,409 in um, interest and fees from um, property taxes that had to be entered into a payment plan. And a lot of the people in those payment plans are low-income people or people who have difficulty making the ends meet. And so um, that is, you know, kind of ridiculous. And that is not going to be solved through this Raffaelli case. 
Um, so um, th those are my thoughts. I think my thoughts are, I think it's a good start. I think it is good that um, we've had a Supreme Court um, ruling that um, went against asset forfeitures. Now we have a Supreme Court ruling that is going against excessive, um, excessive um, income or profit after the sale of tax foreclosed property. And hopefully this means that we're gonna have additional changes in the law. Yeah, I think, go ahead, Chase. Well, what's powerful about the case is that it was, it was argued before the Michigan Supreme Court, like Donna said, but it wasn't just based on Michigan law. Um, so it was ruled unconstitutional under our constitution of the state, um, but it was also ruled unconstitutional under the United States Constitution, the wow. Fifth Amendment. So, I mean, that makes it even more powerful, um, really a more powerful win, because under the U.S. Constitution, you can't take property as a government without just compensation. So, Wow. Yeah. And, the, you know, you know, my... Uh, ha ha my praise and hats off to Alex Alsop, who's a friend, we have to have him on. Uh, you know, I'm wondering uh, where we are taking the conversation now, right? So uh, the just compensation piece is a huge piece. No, you can't profit. And if you do have profits from a sale that on a home that has been property tax foreclosed upon, you must return that uh, to the owner. But uh, the uh, the inequity of these fees that folks can't get out of, these payment plans that folks never catch up on. Um, we have to start that conversation um, and figure out who the players are uh, to make change um, in that realm because that's still ravaging the pocketbooks uh, of so many folks um, in the counties, uh, particularly Wayne County and Oakland County. Yeah, I mean, in any other context, 18% would be a predatory fee. If you purchase a house and finance it for 18% interest, people would say that's not a good deal. If you had a credit card for 18% interest, people would say you need to um, re refinance. And here we have a government that is imposing predatory fees on its citizens. Um, and the people who really pay the cost for a bill that ostensibly was written in the late 1990s to, um, that's, I'm talking about the Accelerated Tax Foreclosure Bill, um, a law, um, that was really targeting absentee landlords. Absentee landlords, however, have a way of continuing to not pay their tax bills because what they do is they end up, um, they end up not paying their tax bills. They have the house taken from them. They purchase it again under another LLC name at auction and they keep going again and again and again doing that. Now, an individual cannot do that. If you lose your home to tax foreclosure, you cannot buy it back from the county at auction. Uh, so there's more penalties against them. There could be a perverse incentive. And I think this is one of the things that um, some people are concerned about, although I don't think it would happen often, where um, somebody would, a, a landlord say, would lose their home to tax foreclosure. Um, it would be sold and they'd make the money based on the real estate sale and then they purchase at an auction and make more money again. And so I think there's a concern about how that's going to be used, but I think that the greater concern should always be how things impact citizens in the state of Michigan. Um, it is a state law and therefore we need the people with political capital in our region, um, the Wayne County Executive, the um, treasurer and the, the uh, mayor of Detroit to go to Lansing and make demands on these changes. They've done it in other instances where they care about things when they want to change um, the um, 
the Aspirational Brownfields tax credits, they went up there. That too. Um, Mayor Duggan had a whole campaign where he paid for people to run for office to fight the insurance law and change the insurance law. If he is not doing this, then what I can say is it's not a priority for our local governments. And I think that it's not a priority for reasons that go beyond not caring about citizens. It's not a priority because our local governments kind of depend on these um, predatory fees to function. Yeah. And it depend on predatory fees because our tax, our revenue, tax revenue is not sufficient. Yeah. We should be right. looking at we how we structure our revenue. Yeah. Um, a couple of people on this show, I know Chase and now Orlando are board members of the Citizens Research Council, and they've written a great, um, they've done a great analysis on what needs to be done, what options are. Without political will and a political push to change this, nothing is going to change because, again, um, what this does, and I guess this is the last thing I'll say about it, what this does, if you have predatory fees, if you are in a predatory um, city, and you're uh, managing a predatory government, as Bernadette Tuani talks about, and that's how she characterizes our governments, which rely on excessive fees, penalties, and tickets to function. What it allows you to do is keep the taxes low. So I'm gonna charge you fewer taxes, but you're gonna pay more in fees. Um, the other area where you might see that is where we don't pay for infrastructure, and therefore the drainage fee, the sewer, the stormwater drainage fee is so high because the infrastructure cost is being pushed onto a ratepayer. So I think that we need to really look at restructuring all of that if we want justice. Yeah, let's not kick this can down the road. Let's, right. let's, Great job, Alex, for keeping us mindful that the victory is not really at hand. We need to continue fighting. Yeah, thank you for your close eye on this, Alex. We have to have you on Authentically Detroit one of these days. Uh, fresh off the press, President Trump threatens to send federal officers to Detroit, other cities over protests. Thank you, Todd Spangler at the Detroit Free Press uh, for reporting. So I think this is, a, this is a development that came out on Sunday, uh, President Trump uh, just talking as he does. And he named Detroit among other cities uh, to around repeating what happened in Portland, Oregon, where he sent in untrained federal law enforcement uh, to help quell protests um, in Portland, Oregon, and is now threatened to do the same for the city of Detroit and other cities that have seen continual protests. The governor of the state of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, has uh, rebutted saying Donald Trump knows nothing about the city of Detroit or how the protests are being carried out. Most of them for however many days since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis have been uh, peaceful. Uh, what do you make of uh, Donald Trump's uh, tendency toward uh, a police state and you know we see what he did in dc when he was walking to the the church for a photo op and uh used uh federal uh troops to disperse the crowd without ever talking to uh mayor bowser or you know the dc uh police department um and oregon and portland has had also an adverse reaction to this to this uh this this over leveraging of power i would say what do you make of this why <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in hearing from officer woods what you make of it because um you know this is this is going to influence your work right the work of your department 
Um, it, it absolutely would. Um, so I think that, um, and I have to be specific to Detroit, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, sending in federal troops is a um, huge, first of all, slap in the face to the Detroit Police Department because um, we don't really have the issues to the degree of other cities as it comes, uh, as it pertains to um, police and community interaction. Um, our department is deeply rooted in community involvement and community policing. So, um, and for the most part, most of our protests have been peaceful. Um, to the point where, you know, officers, I know my partner and I and several other units, we're actually passing out PPE to protesters, you know, be it a mask, sanitizer, whatever, um, you know, a protester may need in order for them to still be able to um, uh, express their, you know, their voices, their concerns, and um, be safe while doing it. Uh, what we don't want to do is create chaos. And I think that sending in federal troops, you know, um, will do exactly that. You know, when you don't understand the community and you go from zero to 10 to send a message, uh, I don't think that uh, Detroiters will be so understanding about that. It's almost like going into someone's kitchen and telling them how to cook with their pots and spices, you know, for uh, lack of a better reference. Um, we don't need tanks rolling down the street. We don't need um, uh, enforcement to that magnitude. Um, we have a good rapport with our citizens. And to be honest, a lot of the uh, citizens of Detroit, when these protests are going on, a lot of them are um, very understanding of the uh, messaging and the foundation of which the protests stand on. However, most of the issues are not specific to Detroit. Um, and I think I can say that with uh, a genuine heart and a sincerity, being um, a woman, being black, being a Detroiter my whole life and uh, being an officer and being uh, part of the LGBT community, all of these things encompass who I am. And I don't think that federal police is the answer to uh, try and grab uh, hold of what's going on today. I, I don't think that that's the answer. Can so, I say that I know that the Detroit police has LGBTQ liaison? I didn't know that existed until um, till you were here. And I do think that that is a progressive move. So I do want to give some credit. I think that the police community relations vary um, by citizen, by community, yes. by experience. Um, I have not had mostly bad experiences with policing, mm -hmm. but I know people who have. Um, yeah. My hairdresser's son was assaulted at a gas station they paid out, um, you know, I think Jeffrey Figer represented him, 
you know, you got, I don't know how much money, 50, $75,000 that went away. And it's just the cost of doing business and policing where sometimes you have some officers who engage in certain kind of behavior in certain areas. He's in the 4205. And I don't know, he, um, he looks exactly like Lil Wayne. So maybe they just thought he was Lil Wayne and they don't oh. like him. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but he's, he's about that small. And um, so I think, you know, he's, he doesn't present a risk and the injuries that he had sustained, the gas station owner actually videotaped it, you know, mm -hmm. and shared it with his mother. So you do have those things taking place. And I'm not going to say that that culture is a predominant culture, but I don't think anybody lost their job. Right. So uh, definitely not claiming perfection in any way, shape or form. Um, we are all constantly a work in progress and uh, especially excuse me, when it comes to training, you know, um, I'm a firm believer in it's hard to police people when you don't understand them. And, um, you know, hence uh, my role as liaison, you know, a lot of times uh, the LGBTQ community was um, ignored, you mm -hmm. know, not, not even uh, seen as people, you know, and so uh, Detroit has the only LGBTQ sensitivity, competency, and awareness training that is certified by the state of Michigan, um, which I teach, no. <laughs> but um, we have this training in order to um, provide insight into not just um, the culture, but also the history and terminology. Yeah. And, you know, just different things, uh, case law, you know, just different things to help not just law enforcement entities, but businesses, organizations, anyone that uh, deems that they need this understanding to better communicate with the community that they don't understand. And, you know, uh, I often say it's a shame that we have to have training to teach people how to treat people. But, you know, an age old cliche, you know, people fear what they don't understand. And so they either offend or they don't engage. And uh, there's no progression that way. You know, we have to be able to communicate. We have to be able to interact. And so by uh, letting you in and giving you some background and understanding into the culture, then it's like, oh, okay, I, I didn't know that, but now I do. And so now I'm not afraid to engage with this person. Um, but I do, I, I will say this, um, you know, a lot of people get mad at the police for enforcing laws, forgetting that we don't make them, we enforce them. And with that being said, uh, sometimes you do have to uh, set a, a tone, if you will, um, to maintain order because that's the role of a police officer, protect and serve and maintain the peace and good order of, you know, neighborhood and society. Right. And but, so you have to be able to, you know, create a space where now we can both uh, come together and at least try to meet each other halfway on said issues or uh, circumstances. If I could just jump in really quickly, uh, Donna, 
uh, and Chase, because this is going to be a huge part of the discussion we're going to have later on in the show. Let me just try to put a button on this Donald Trump story really quickly so we, oh. we can get to this discussion and have it uh, in a more robust way. I think uh, we need to take the sentiment of the president seriously. He has proven to have uh, dictator mm-hmm. qualities. He sounds like a dictator. He names cities that have significant Black populations. And so uh, just a reinforcement of his bias and racism that come out that came out in these sentiments and we need to push vehemently and watch vehemently what his actions uh, will be following this statement i have no doubt in my mind that because he said it that he really does have intentions on keeping a close eye on what happens in these cities and sending in federal troops he is touting what happened in portland as a success and so we need to make sure Uh, that we are prepped and ready. I'm hoping that the police department and the mayor's office are having conversations about what this would look like if this does happen. I don't think it's something that we can brush off or not take seriously. Uh, This president, yeah. Can I just say one thing about this? Yeah. It is responsibility of the public officials of this city to stop mischaracterizing what's happening in the city of Detroit. When I hear repeatedly that these are outside agitators coming in, trying to mess things up, that gives the mayor, I mean, the, the, the president, almost the um, permission to come in, to control light. outside, out of, out, 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 yes, it green lights bring people in. We've got to stop doing that. Protest is an American thing. It is something that is guaranteed in the Constitution. We don't have to like it. We don't have to believe it. But we can, can we stop talking about outside agitators as if somehow our city is being occupied by people who are destroying things? Um, it is offensive to those people who have been organizing these things and calling people into the city and asking for their solidarity. And also, it does expose us to a risk for uh, federal enforcement. Thank so, you for that point, Donna. Chase, yeah, your to, point, and then we're moving on. Yeah. To, to, button, to button it up, I mean, so it was interesting, Officer Woods, you know, made, made it clear that, you know, the the goal of police departments, um, you know, the the the, the, the stated goal is to, is to maintain order and to avoid chaos, right? But Donald Trump is a failed president and all failed presidents want a war. And since we don't have an external war that he can wow. turn to um, and he can't win the war against the pandemic because that has been painted as a war and he is losing that as well, mm-hmm. this is the war. He's creating a war that he feels that he can win. Yeah. Um, so to Orlando's point, we do have to be very vigilant um, in understanding what his mindset is. He will carry through um is our governor is our mayor ready when that happens and that's a that's a big question and 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 just once again the culture war cannot take place in detroit the culture in detroit has to be inclusive the culture in detroit has to be accepting and welcoming because if we engage in culture wars for our own cynical purposes we invite the president to use his own purposes to escalate that war yes donna Okay. Fresh off the press. Um, tackling Detroit's flight crisis. Will Duncan's latest step proposal deliver the goods? Joe Gillian at Detroit Free Press is reporting. So um, I, think I think I saw a quote in there from yeah, somebody that's on yeah, the show right now. Yeah, I did. I saw a quote was, in there. Was from Chase. Quoted? What? I've known Chase. <laughs> I've known Chase for four years. And it's the 
first time I've disagreed with something that he said in public. But uh -oh. <laughs> um, yeah, um, no, I mean, it's not a big thing. But I think you made some good points. I just feel like um, what, the, what this proposal has done is tried to accommodate the pushback that um, the mayor received during the blight bond. Um, now he's reintroduced an infant improvement bond and ostensibly on his face, what he's saying is that they're no longer going to prioritize demolition over preservation, that they're going to preserve as many homes as possible, which is a sentiment of residents in the city of Detroit. And I just have to say the Detroit 21 an organization, which I belong to and represent, um, push for that. So that's a good thing. The other thing he's talking about is, um, is working is really addressing the um, the demolition department, strengthening the demolition department, ensuring uh, more accountability as well as inclusion of black contractors, and also incentives for contractors to hire black people from the city. Um, there was a loophole in there, the FCA loophole, where they were going to provide incentives for um, demolition contractors that interview gave. Um, Detroit has a first priority for interview, but that did not go over well. Um, and so they've removed that and now it is 51%. And then if you don't hire enough, then you get a fine. And um, there are concerns about that as well because the fines don't necessarily stop people from not hiring black people or Detroiters. It just means that there is a cost of doing business as well. So um, it's a, a new proposal. Now the part that gets a little controversial is who gets to do the renovation? Um, so we're talking about $160 million for demolition and $90 million for securing vacant homes. And um, then some of those homes are going to be redeveloped. And what the mayor has, what this, this proposal agrees to do is partner with community development organizations and other qualified neighborhood organizations, as well as providing incentives and uh, priority for residents to purchase, to acquire and fix up vacant land in their communities. And I'm hoping that means vacant homes. But I think that there's this concern right now because community development organizations were named as possible partners that somehow our influence is going to be undue and this is going to exclude others from having access to um, houses for rehab purposes. And I kind of thought that was what I was hearing from Chase. So that's, so that's not where I was headed. That was not where I was headed. And, it, and in fact, it's interesting. Joe, Joe Gillen and I had a conversation about this um, as, as he was writing it. Um, and, I, and, the, and the language was actually changed to, to make sure that that was not the point that was made. It was not against community development organizations. Um, so to, to step back just a little bit, last year when the blight bond was first presented, um, you know, Arthur Jemison, who, who you know, leads everything related to housing and land in the city, um, talked about what the mayor had already done, right? What the, what the administration had already done. Um, and basically they said they had already demolished 21,000 homes, right? Um, and that there was this universe of 8,000 that were basically salvaged, right? They're on their way to be rehabbed or the rehab has already been completed. Um, all of that takes place through the Detroit Land Bank Authority. Um, and it's unclear to me, and no one's really pushed back against the administration yet, and I'm hoping that some council member does, about what does it mean to salvage a home? Um, we, we know that when, when a home is purchased from the land bank, really this administration just wants it off the books. And you know, there are lots of times when purchased homes remain vacant, remain untouched, remain unhabbed, unrehabbed. Um, so when they say that you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna rehab 8,000 homes, again, these homes still are owned by the land bank. They're not owned by the city. Um, 
And of that universe of 8,000 that this new, uh, I'm still calling it a blight bond, but neighborhood improvement bond. It's um, a neighborhood improvement bond, Chase Kendrick. Right, that, that still addresses blight, right? Like that's the goal, so call it what you will. Um, <laughs> that of the 8,000 in this new proposal, um, off the top, they say that 2,000 can be sold within a year. So they're not, they're not really even concerned about, you know, doing much to those homes. So we're really talking about a universe of 6,000 houses. So the nine, nine, 90 million that Donna cited is gonna be applied to that 6,000, but that's really for getting debris and trash out of the house, securing the house and-, and So board, boarding it up and cleaning it out and boarding it up. Cleaning it out, boarding it up and weatherizing it, right? Or weatherproofing it, putting on a new yeah. roof if necessary. Um, yeah. So that's about $15,000 worth of work. Um, the city continues to say that in partnership with CDOs, with community development orgs, they hope to get more money from the federal government to do even more extensive rehabs. Okay. That, money, that money has not been promised by the federal government. Our, our administration is lobbying with HUD, with Ben Carson. Arthur has named him by name. You know, We're lobbying Ben Carson to um, get more federal dollars into the city of Detroit. Um, and that's a promise, but you know, a lot of Detroiters have issues with this administration keeping keeping its promises. So, you know, will we have that in writing? Will that will we actually get those monies? And if we don't, you know, is fifteen thousand dollars applied across a universe of six thousand homes enough to really have the impact that Mayor Duggan says that he wants to have? And that's a question mark for me. Um, and, and I think the aesthetic, especially on those homes, is especially important because if we're going to salvage them, let's salvage them and let's not let it look like blight. I think. Right. <laughs> Well, they're talking about using Clear Clearview, which is a um, a process that make, makes it look less like blight. They're talking about repairing the roofs, and so you know, and in, in talking to some of my partners who do housing development, yeah, um, or who do that vacant home rehab, they feel as though a big cost is in removing trash, securing the homes, and um, that kind of thing. So I think that there's, but but everybody agrees, fifteen thousand dollars is not enough. Yeah, I don't and know. I think that the language is misleading. Um, there is no guarantee that any um, CDO will get a contract. Right. Everybody has to go through the exact same qualifications process. Well, that's good. However, it is a framework by which CDOs can get access. And so it does not give us disproportionate power. And that's the reason it says, and other partner with CD CDOs and other qualified neighborhood organizations. So and Donna, can I also point out that even within this, uh, the, the Duggan administration, since he's come into power, CDOs have been virtually locked out of a lot of these processes and uh, CDOs have been, you know, had been bearing the brunt of carrying out these kind of services when the city had absolutely no capacity. And when the city emerged from bankruptcy, there was this, um, you know, this sort of identity crisis on part of CEOs who could not get access to uh, city processes or any more contracts because the mayor chose not to utilize CEOs but bring everything in-house. I think this is a step toward more inclusivity because the fact is uh, residents are more likely to make their first stop when they have a problem to their neighborhood community development organization and to that community engagement manager at that CDC. When I was at EC and my phone rang every single day, couldn't get in without my phone ringing. And it was regular problems. It was blight. It was every, it was 
any problem that somebody had. And so I think this is a step toward, um, you know, more equitable access. I also think that we should make mention that even right now, as we are recording Authentically Detroit, City Council is in general session. And we think that there might be a vote today. We're talking today, Tuesday, July 21st, uh, where council may vote in favor of putting proposal in um, on the November ballot. Right. And I just want to say that, um, you know, in, in, in forming this agreement to partner, the, the Arthur Jemison talked also about the pastor on the west side of Detroit, I don't remember his name, who developed 25 homes, who's not a CDO. And I'm very proud of my partners in the industry because as we fight, we don't fight for ourselves and trying to get a backroom deal. In fact, I've had politicians ask, what do you want? And offer money. We don't want money. We want a just system. And a just system says that people who have the capacity to do this work can and should. And the difference between a CDO, and the reason it's important to call that out, is the difference between us and um, a private developer is a community developer, first of all, has local accountability on our boards and also on the committees that we form. We have people, residents in the neighborhood. Many of us live in the neighborhoods we're trying to improve, number one. And number two, because we have a philanthropic purpose, a mission purpose, our way of finding our success is not profit. And when you contrast that with some private developers for whom profit is the only driver, then when they do a property, they're going to charge as much as they can to get as much return as they can. That's the way the economy works. That's how development works. And so we are more motivated, I believe, in, the most, in most instances, although not in all instances, to develop properties for people who do not have access to housing right now. And our primary concern at um, Detroit 21, at ECN, and many of my community development partners is making sure that we leverage some of these 8,000 vacant homes, many of them, for people who have, are struggling to find quality affordable housing in Detroit right now. Whether those are people who are income limited or people who um, we have also asked for the city to reserve one third of its inventory that they're planning on preserving for people who lost their homes to overassessment. So I can, so I, can so I completely agree with the, the motivations of CDOs. Um, but it, to, to your point about not wanting money in backroom deals, I think that's completely true. But I am really concerned about the capital for all of this, right? Like, will CDOs actually get the money, get access to money, whether it's you know through um, community black black grant dollars or through um, you know philanthropy, wherever the equity comes from, to actually do the work? Because if because access isn't enough. If the city decides to partner with CDOs, say saying you guys get you know uh, a bite at the apple, but there's no money for you to do the work then we're in the same spot that, that we we're, were before, right? And we are, we're in complete agreement. We're fighting for the money too. Yeah. We're saying they have to put something <laughs> on the table, okay? Don't just where ask money. money. Where is and it? And we just, well, you know, even if it's private money. capital, you know, Maybe again, the city, the city accumulated private capital for the strategic neighborhood fund. That did Absolutely. not come from the city coffers. The, when the, the city uses its political capital to say this is important, they can help drive private decisions they can raise money. How the money is invested. So I'm in completely agreement with you. And we asked them to document, not in a PowerPoint slideshow, but in a resolution or the blight bind itself, where the money is going to come from.
Let me just say that I've never seen the municipality raise money from private corporations and philanthropy like I've seen in the city of Detroit. I've never seen anything like it. And so uh, there is a concern about about this capital. But, you know, I tend to lean on uh, where Donna is leaning that if there is the political will to really, really make this happen, as the city of Detroit has done with plans that they want to carry out there it seems pretty they they do a good job of raising <laughs> uh money from philanthropy and, and you know private entities can i, can I, I just mean, say one final thing on this chase you go and then i'll go well I, I just wanted to pick up on a point that you that you made about you know getting the promises in writing um because mm-hmm. what, what's happened is the administration presented this um last week Right. So, so last Tuesday it was formally presented to city council on the 14th, um, and they are asking within a very short time frame that city council move this to the ballot. Right. So that doesn't really give community partners enough time to really force, and I will use that word, for, force this administration to put things in writing. Right. They're they're moving this very rapidly through. Um, the idea is that we're going to give Detroit voters the, the 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 right in the moment to to vote this up or down, but you know, unless we get some of these promises in writing, all we get is, you know, this, the, the, the vaguer the terms, the, the more potential there is for this not to have the impact that we as a community want it to have. Right. You know, here we are, we have um, everybody who works, lives in the city of Detroit, um, the mayor, the city council, everybody who works in the city of Detroit is responsible for everybody here, not just for some people. And when some of the people you're responsible for providing for in your role as a political leader don't have housing, don't have adequate housing, um, when some of the people don't have running water, when some of the people don't have access to food, that seems like it should be a priority of our government to provide for quality of life. And if you have people who are functioning well, we're going to talk about violence. I know we haven't talked about the latest round of violence, but we're going to get to in a minute. Part of it is caused by people living in trauma. And part of that trauma is caused by poverty because poverty, intergenerational poverty, concentrated poverty is traumatizing. And so um, these are not things that we should have to demand from our government. In my opinion, it is unfortunate that we do. It is unfortunate that corporations have a louder voice than citizens and that people with money have a louder voice than people without money. And that's why we're at this table right now having these conversations. So, um, well, I'm you know, I'm actually glad they, they that we succeed. I'm glad that there is a body like the Detroit 21 able to have those conversations to amplify the concerns that uh, CDEOs are hearing on the ground. On the ground, um, thankful for it. Uh, that wraps up our Fresh Up the Press segment. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Now we're going to go back to a discussion that we began a while ago, talking about the relationship that the Detroit Police Department has with citizens in the city of Detroit. The mayor and Chief Craig says, we're not like other cities, and that police have a great relationship with the community. Today, we'll get Officer Woods' take on the situation uh, from... Uh, from the ground. So officer was just to, uh, you know, begin to continue uh, the conversation that we were getting into earlier. Um, We've heard the mayor talk about and the chief talk about that Detroit is not like other cities. 
um, in terms of the violence that other cities have experienced uh, as a result of protests. Um, and I, will, I would tend uh, to agree with that, Officer Woods, but is that, but I think they are conflating that with the relationship that DPD has with the community. And is that an overstatement? Um, is there still something to be said around tension between uh, folks um, in the streets and the police department here in the city? Um, absolutely. So first, I want to, uh, um, before I answer your question, um, Donna, you made a comment earlier about um, um, agitators and um, people outside of Detroit coming into the city. And I definitely don't want to um, diminish people that support causes that don't live in the city. I uh, was specifically speaking about, um, and I just wanted to make this clear, um, people that are looking to make Detroit a Baltimore or St. Louis or, you know, a city in, in that aspect, you know, when you're protesting, that's one thing, but when you're uh, bringing weapons to um, uh, antagonize or attack, that's a whole different ball game. I don't think that many Detroiters are walking around with railroad spikes in their bags, you know, and um, coming to a protest with the idea of waiting for the sun to go down to tear up the city and then go back to your city and uh, lay your head down and rest peacefully. That that was mainly what I was talking about. Um, so when I said people coming from outside the city. Um, so back to you, Orlando. Um, I would say that, uh, we as a department and as a city have so many um, olive branches and hands in community involvement. So if you take, for instance, excuse me, um, our citizen citywide radio patrol, a lot of people, a lot of cities don't have that where our citizens still believe in the essence of neighborhood and to just go a step further and become another sector of eyes and ears to protect their neighborhood, to watch out for um, anything, you know, that can disturb the peace and good order. You have citizens that volunteer to patrol their own neighborhood. We have our Citizens Police Academy. You know, people don't even know about that, where we invite citizens in and we put on classes specifically before COVID. Uh, we would do two a year, you know, we would do a summer and a fall. And we invite citizens in and we expose them to um, crime scene investigation, domestic violence investigation, homicide, um, active shooter, when to shoot, when not to shoot, you know, putting people in um, scenarios and in those spaces where it's easy to watch TV and say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. But when you're standing in that position and you have not even a nanosecond to make a decision, you have to act on that. And, you know, good decision, bad decision, you have to make one. Yeah. You don't have, a, you don't have an option. And so, you know, exposing our citizens to 
those kinds of situations just to, you know, get the other side of the coin to see what it's really like and then developing community-oriented programs where we're not talking at our community, we're talking to them and they have a seat at the table and they're able to represent for not just, you know, their neighborhood, but for their children, for the space that they occupy in their neighborhood, it is really imperative to have those relationships because you can't enforce or police where you don't understand, you yeah. know, the people. I think, that, I think we've been hearing that sentiment from the mayor and from the chief. I don't disagree with you, especially around the amazing strides uh, that police have, that police and the police commission have in communities. I'm really close to the fifth precinct. I am a community relations member. I know Commander Ewing. I know the officers at the fifth precinct. It's some amazing work. I've gone on right along to some amazing work. But I think that there is, um, and I told you this when we talked before, a certain kind of citizen that's going to engage in citizen policing, that's going to engage yeah. Yeah. in the community relations council. Those that that's a certain segment of the population. And I think we've heard we've heard about that population, but I'm wondering about people like my little bro, who's, you know, who's not gonna come to uh, a community relations meeting, who's right. not gonna have the audience of the mayor or Chief Craig to say, I really appreciate what you're doing, or I don't appreciate the way you're doing X, Y, and Z. How is the police talking to that segment of the population, the one that's not going to come to a table that's set sometimes. So I think, can I also I just think, add to that question? Um, we have staff members at ECN who want to go to the fifth precinct meetings, community relations meetings, and can't get in. They have to be invited in. And because Orlando used to be the person who was going there, we're trying to figure out who to write a letter to to go to those meetings. So how do you expand the universe of people who are even welcome? So I think that, um, first of all, we have uh, several different kinds of uh, citizens, if you will. We have those that are pro-police, and then we have some that, I'm not going to say anti-police, but no thank you. You know, um, I think that in really wanting to create change, you have to um, kind of have, you, you kind of have to take a stance in uh, trying to meet halfway, right? So even though you might not like the police, if you want to effectively create change, there has to be some kind of way we can just engage each other to the point where I hear you and you hear me and we can kind of develop uh, some kind of interaction. Now, um, you know, I'll just give an example. You know, sometimes uh, while on patrol, you'll see uh, parents with their kids. And if their kid is acting up, they'll say, if you don't act right, I'm going to have the, this police officer take you to jail. That creates a fear. That creates a, a space in a kid's head where it's like, I should fear this person and not look at this person as the one I call for help, because that ultimate, that's ultimately what happens when something happens, when an uh, issue arises, you call the police, you call 911, 
to to get that assistance. We're not playing, you know, house lottery out here like, hey, there's one, let's go in there. No, you have to call in order for us to to come and do something. But there is a, a community of people that are just, you know, they've had those bad experiences. You know, I have family members that are not pro-police. They're like, well, we love you, Danny, but when you put that uniform on, it's, it's, it's different. We still love you, but you represent a, a group of people that I don't agree with, which is understandable because everyone's interaction with police is not um, a great experience. However, um, to effectively create change, you have to be willing to uh, listen, you know, take action. You can't just come with a problem. If you have an idea or even a solution of some sort, that's helpful. You know, sometimes people just come and they're just doing this all day, but what are you doing? You know, are we even policing ourselves? Well, that's a good question about policing ourselves because um, do police officers police themselves? We talk about people in the community having a no snitch culture, but I can't think of a better no snitch culture than the Detroit, not, not Detroit, than police departments. Police mm -hmm. officers don't snitch on each other. You can be right next to us. That's the reason we have to pass laws that say, hey, if a police officer is committing a crime, I think Minneapolis passed a law yesterday that says it's intervene. a crime not to intervene. Yeah. We have to tell police officers and have it, and then police unions will fight that. And, yeah. you know, just in last year, just last year, a sweeping review um, found racist attitudes among white Detroit cops and commanders in April of 2019. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm in the sixth precinct where a sweeping review was conducted and that finding was taking place, my feelings about a police officer have less to do with my mother saying, I'm going to call the police on you, although I think no parent should do that, than experiences I may have witnessed with police officers. And so I think, you know, the other thing is that we have police inside of school buildings. And um, when police are inside of school buildings, maybe everybody's nice, you know, nine out of 10 might be respectful of the students. But if you have one police officer, every time a student walks into school, they harass and they talk about them. I've seen police officers having students on the ground in uh, uh, little girls, young girls. Um, face down with their knee in their back, hands typed. And it's like, wait a minute, this is a very aggressive stance. And when I was at one school, I'm not gonna name this school, it doesn't exist anymore. So this was years ago. They had all of the IDs of students in this binder. And the, 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 the book was entitled um, Student Mugshots. So student IDs were construed as mugshots by the security wow. inside of a school. I think that it is not incumbent on residents to make the changes. I think it is incumbent upon police officers to demonstrate they can trust. I think it's great having people ride along in a car and seeing what it's like to be a police officer and seeing how difficult it is. I would love for police officers to pose as young black men standing in some neighborhoods and see what happens when a squad car drives down the street. So perhaps you could understand the fear and the anger that they have. I was doing a community meeting um, two years ago that one of my um, younger staff asked me to hold, talking to young people. And I was talking about policing and how we need to be positive about reform. And this young man started just telling me off and telling me about how his father was stopped and how his father was mistreated in front of him. And he watched his father become very 
servile and was talked to in this horrible way by the police officer and he was so angry. And when I did not agree that things were getting better, he got angry with me and I realized I need to start listening to young people and stop thinking through my own eyes because I believed it. And yet here I had a young person angry. So I say all of that to say, we have some serious problems. I know it's not all on you. I know that you're doing a great job. I do have some other questions around what's happening with the LGBTQ community. But I want to know also, from your perspective, um, what can the police do to make sure they are showing empathy and understanding for why citizens are so upset? Um, so I think that's the uh, uh, a whole other um, um, issue just in and of itself. Uh, because again, you know, people, and I, I say this uh, very uh, loosely, and I'm uh, hoping that it's not taking out of context. Um, again, people uh, fear what they don't understand. And uh, being a Detroiter and having grown up on the east side and uh, being a, uh, the oldest of four children, um, with two drug addicted parents that were functioning and, you know, having my house raided and sitting on my front lawn and drive-by shootings, you know, I understand and I get it, right? But some of my partners don't. Right. And so it's almost, uh, when you speak of, uh, uh, and I've been saying this often, you know, it's not a, uh, person of color's job to educate uh, a non-person of color on um, our history and you know, our traumas, right? It's on you to educate yourself. But I think that uh, the, the education piece, you, you have to I don't know, I, I was gonna say, you, you have to kind of meet people where they are and then help them to understand. Because some people just really don't get it. They think they know, or you know, they think if they watch a couple movies or they hang around a certain demographic, they got it. Or you know, they even get a pass, but they really don't get it. Especially and, not in, and not, not in police work. I mean, no, we, not we at all. live by that in our social interactions, but when you are, <laughs> when yeah. you are joining a police force, uh, that is supposed to be protecting and serving a majority black city, there is a level of education that should be required on part of those who know, of those who are doing the training and uh, being trained on why trauma shows up in the form that it shows up in, in the city of Detroit. Yep, uh, so I think too, when you don't understand, so everything is not so black or so white a lot of stuff is gray a lot of things are gray and when you have the um authority to use discretion i think that it's a lot of moments that can be capitalized on by using discretion um you don't always have to write a ticket you don't always have to take a person's car um, and depending on, a person doesn't always have to be, you know, placed in handcuffs or arrested. But again, 
it's in those instances and you have to take each situation circumstance by circumstance. Um, policy is uh, key. Policy is paramount. You know, you have, I, I, I can't even tell you how thick the book is on DPD policy as it regards to um, our rules and regulations. And I, I hear you, Donna, with officers that, you know, get out of line and are protected. You know, I've reported officers, you know, when I've noticed something um, out of, you know, I'm not gonna even say out of character, unlawful. I've reported officers. Um, I have, well, we call it dropping paper. And I've done that on officers, you know, even just being offended by, uh, certain, you know, conversations and, you know, you can label me a, a snit. I, I don't care, you know, but again, that's me, you know, and it, it, it sucks because we're homogenized. You know, I even tell officers when I'm training, you can't take these things personally. This is not who they're mad at. They're mad at this because when I go home and I take this off, when I leave back out my door, when I'm at the market, or if I'm driving in traffic, they don't know about this. Mm -hmm. They see this. And so I'm subject to the same things and the same mm -hmm. traumas as other people. And it's scary. You know, wow. I don't have children, but I've raised my siblings and I have, uh, you know, cousins and black men in my family or, you know, that I just, I'm scared for them. Let uh, Chase get in on this. Go ahead. Well, so Officer Woods, uh, I'm, I'm curious. So um, just the, the nature of black, having black skin, right? Um, in, in Detroit, we have a narrative that, not a narrative, I mean, the, a real history that Komen A. Young integrated the police force. That was, a, that was something that he, he fought hard to do. Um, so when we talk about why DPD or, you know, as a community, when we talk about DPD, one of the things that people point to as being different than some other communities is that we have black police officers. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, we talked about the relationship with community as being one of the most important things. How important is it to have black officers? Um, and, and what really does DPD look like right now? Is it 50-50? Is it, is it like, what are the, what's the demographic makeup of our department? Huh. So it's, uh definitely a, a melting pot. Um, it, it's extremely diverse. Um, but if we had to go with uh, what boxes check, right? If we had to stick with basically black and white, um, I would still say um, majority black right now, um, still majority uh, uh, black officers right now. Um, and I know this probably isn't part of the conversation, but also we have the most women in leadership positions in the nation with DPD. Dope, we just had our dope. Women in Blue uh, ceremony today and um, female officer of the year and uh, Lieutenant One and you know, just hearing all of these women's names in leadership was huge. But to answer your question, question Chase, we have, um, uh, majority black officers. And I think that that says a lot for the community that we police, you know, I get it when that squad car rolls down the street, um, there is an anxiety 
uh, an immediate anxiety for some people. There's an immediate trauma that sets in. There's an immediate circumstance or situation that pops in the head that was of a um, negative experience. However, there are also those officers that ride down the street and pull their car over and get out and talk to um, the citizens and talk to uh, the young men and young ladies. You know, we have these uh, sisterhood and brotherhood organizations where we mentor um, our, our youth, you know, and we're in the schools. Uh, we have, uh, I think it's 11 um, high schools at this point um, that were participating in the program. You have those officers that pull over and shoot hoops. I was one that would pull over and, you know, jump in the double dutch game, you know, when girls were outside jumping rope. And so um, I think that it, it matters to have uh, someone that looks like you protecting you as well, you know, and I, trust me, I understand the traumas. I uh, have had some experiences of my own as a young person. However, uh, I was the one that said, I'm going to create change by, from the inside. Right. You know, yeah. even though I signed up for the department on the dare, uh, once I got in and <laughs> here I am 20 years later, um, so many things have happened and have uh, transformed from just wearing this and having the, the experience that I've, I've had, that I've endured as a young Black woman from the city of Detroit. And I, I admire you for being in that position and for doing that work. I admire you for um, working on um, the, as a, as a police community relations person and also for standing up. So thank you for that. Um, we want to hear that, that there are people who stand up. I have friends who are police officers who I know are stand up people, right? I mean, um, in Detroit, if you live in Detroit, you're going to know somebody who's on the force, right? And, yeah, pretty much. And, yeah. So, I mean, that's just our community. And, um, and yet, racism still persists, even yes. in Detroit. And, um, you know, racism is not fixed. Racism is not always fear. In fact, I don't even think it's usually fear. I think racism is hate in a lot of times. And hate can't be fixed through exposure. Um, hate comes from a different type of place. You know, there's men who hate women. And being yep. married to a woman is not going to make you love um, women. You know, I, it, we've got to work and understand there's some psychological factors beyond our control. And the real question is, how do you root out people who hate? Because if one out of four officers hates and the other three are wonderful people, that one person is going to impact everything about how the community responds to the police. Yeah. So you know what? It's, it's interesting that you say that because I think that in uh, specific circumstances, people are homogenized, right? So you have an officer that does something terrible. Mm -hmm. And then there's all, all police are this. You have a black person that does something terrible why black people always got to be like this. You have a white person that does something terrible. White people are just, you know, and people are grouped into this um, terrible incident and huh, 
dare I use the word fair, but is that fair? Well, I would say that if the police union did not defend people who did terrible things, mm -hmm. and if the police unions were not places where terrible people sometimes congregated, then we wouldn't do that. If a terrible police officer does something terrible and they get con there's consequences and they're no longer police officers, I'm fine, okay? I'm not really fine, but at least we know right. there's justice, okay? There's accountability. If, 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 if a black male on the street or a black woman on the street does something that's criminal and you know they did it and you can prove they did it, there's gonna be justice. But when a police officer does, the failure to administer justice and the role police unions play in helping mm -hmm. to stop justice disciplinary from actions or the have to be yeah. examined. And we, you know, as much as I can really love you and think you're a wonderful person and still think that the structure of policing needs to change so that justice can ring down inside of our cities everywhere in the U.S. So I will 100% agree with you on that. What 100%. Officer Woods, what do you say about uh, the, 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 the infrastructure that policing has been built on um, in the United States of America? We have, we have calls for abolishing uh, police as we know it, uh, defund the police. Uh, I am uh, embracing language around reimagining uh, the police, <laughs> reimagining how we police and how we sort of uproot its racist foundation so that we can figure out how to make it work for today. There's so much language going around and I know that you're privy to some of it. Well, how are you feeling about it? What are you internalizing? What's your opinion on all of that? Um, well, I definitely think um, holding people accountable is uh, paramount. You know, you have to, uh, you, it's sad that, you know, sometimes some departments they get hit so hard that the slightest thing that the next person does they're the scapegoat or they're the person and it's like okay we can't take any more hard hits we've got to do something and this person is the you know has to suffer the grunt for all of the wrongdoing um but i think that accountability is key you know calling it out and putting it smack dab in your face and holding this person to whatever the circumstance is of wrongdoing. There was a young man on uh, Let It Rip one day um, when you talk about the culture of snitching. And I will never ever forget this. And it just, it stuck with me. And this is probably like four years ago. And the culture of uh, snitching, whether it's on the street in the organization, wherever, because we know doctors that mess up, we know people in business that steal money and somebody see, they don't say nothing, you know, it's not my business, you know, it happens in, in every uh, aspect of life. But he said that snitching stands for someone needs information that can help. And I thought that was so awesome. And I think that uh, you can change the culture and infrastructure by not being afraid to speak up. I think that a lot of times when people don't have support in trying to take those actions, they tend to shy away from even engaging. 
And so, you know, if you have a situation where we're going to protest, we're going to get out here, we're going to let our voices be known, come out here and support us, right? And you may have five people show up. Well, you kind of feel uh, defeated even at, in that moment because you don't have any support. People not feeling what you're feeling. People are not um, wanting to address your specific cause. And so, you know, you tried to make an effort. It didn't happen. So now you just go back and you deal. You, you settle for whatever the circumstances are. I think that support is key. Accountability is key. Um, I, I think that that is a great starting, a starting point. Um, our chief is huge on holding people accountable. You know, everyone doesn't get to see what goes on in the, you know, in, in those uh, conference rooms, you know, where he is absolutely letting officers have it um, for, uh, you know, unprofessionalism or, um, you know, even criminal activity, you know, internal affairs is really busy these days. And so is the officer chief investigator. And people don't um, even know that they can make those complaints. You know, uh, officer chief investigator is a civilian unit and they investigate uh, wrongdoings of police. And officers are held accountable every day, but all of that is not going to be, uh, you know, that's not going to be on the news. That's not going to be, you know, for the general public to see, but it happens. You know, officers lose pay and benefits all the time. And, you know, whether it's for something administrative or, you know, criminal activity where they, you know, are arrested and charged, you know, all of those things aren't, you know, publicized. But I think, again, holding people accountable and having that support, you know, even right now, if we started a group and said, hey, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, I may have a reach in this particular area. And I say, well, I'm going to reach out to this person because they have the connection here where we, can, you know, get the, you know, the attorney general's ear. And blah, but nobody shows up. Right. It's just, it's, you, you, you feel defeated and you lose and then you wind up settling for whatever's going on and you internalize and there sets in the trauma, there sets in the resentment, there sets in all of these things and it could have taken initiative, little conversation, um, even when, um, I forget if it was Donna or Orlando that, um, said, you know, how do we get the people that are non-police uh, to these community meetings? Well, I think that when you have someone that is in those spaces, so say like you, Orlando, it would be cool for you to say, hey, I want to organize this in the neighborhood or at this church, and we want to invite, you know, the police officers to come, you know, or even if it's just one or two, you know, I would hold a LGBT community chat every year at Palmer Park. And this was to bring law enforcement and community together to figure out a way to better serve our community, to find out what our community wants from their police and um, 
to, you know, set the lane where we can meet each other halfway and make this thing happen. I didn't have it at a police station because if I do, community's not going to come. <laughs> and I understand that. I'm not going to have it, you know, I'm going to have it on neutral ground. I'll have it where you want to have it That's because good. I need for you to let to me level, know. To level want. power. Yeah, it's, it's, and I, I want to meet you where you are in yeah. order to make it happen. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. Annie, I, I want to make sure we don't miss this point. What is the Detroit Police Department doing to protect trans women? Um, well, we actually have trans women on the job and trans men. Um, and even protecting- Wait, I didn't know that, really. That's oh, absolutely. That's absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, wow. yes. We are, are, we are very diverse. You leaving, honey? Bye. My wife is leaving. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Um, yes, we do have um, every letter of probably our alphabet soup represented on the department. Um, but in protecting all of our citizens, because, you know, if we break it down into these different components, um, we still want to ensure that all of our citizens are protected. Um, if you're speaking specifically, Donna, to um, trans women that engage in survival sex work, no, no? I'm talking about murders. I'm just saying that there's a number of people who are concerned about trans women murders. And I don't know if those are all sex uh, work related murders. Um, okay. But I do know that there has been a national trend and I've read in many instances that trans women are more likely to be killed than any other demographic in the nation. Um, yes. And so the rate is so high that I think although all lives matter, sometimes we do have to be very specific about Absolutely. how we protect vulnerable groups. Yes. Um, and, you know, people can always say after the fact it was a transaction. I don't know whether there's sex, but I think that right, all people should be safe. Absolutely. Um, so just to uh, add to that, um, we had at one point an LGBT um, advisory board, and this was made up of not just LGBT community members, but also allies. And on that board, um, I, I chaired that board. Uh, the chief saw it fit to um, have this particular group of people in place. And on that board, we had three trans women um, that was included in, in that space. Um, since then, uh, the board was, um, uh, I forgot the word I want to use. However, Moving forward right now, we are in the process of creating um, an LGBT community council that will again include every aspect of uh, community, including allies, to better um, serve our community as a whole and even offer different ways in which uh, the police department can do better in assisting and uh, serving our trans community. So you know, everyone has a seat at the table so we can make sure all of those voices are heard. So that's what's going on right now. All right, thank you. Yep. You're muted. I, was, I wanted to bring up uh, some of the, and I know we're limited on time, we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, some of the spikes that we've seen in violent crime in the city of Detroit, um, the, the shooting on the west side that almost, uh, 
<laughs> we don't know what would have happened if Chief Craig hadn't got hopped on that press conference so quickly with the facts. Um, this past weekend was particularly bloody um, on the east side of Detroit and on the west side. We saw footage of what happened um, in the Coney Island. Um, I didn't mean to click on that footage, but I inadvertently saw it. Um, I, I can't unsee it. What what do you think um, can be done? What 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 is being done? Um, and so yeah, what sort of things programs are in place? I also think we have to think in in this. I want to I want to hear your response about the reaction, but also preventative measures that police and community can take to uh, to quell some of these these spikes of violent crime. So first of all, it's very um, disheartening and I get emotional about it because these are, you know, our, our cousins, our brothers, our sisters, Th these are our folks, you know, and there is like zero regard for human life now. And people have become so desensitized to violence that it's just another thing. It's like, oh yeah, that's terrible. Okay, so what time is dinner? You know, like it's it's like moving right along and it has become normal. And it breaks my heart. You know, every morning we get uh, what people probably deem uh, hot sheets, right? And it has the most um, uh, violent crimes or trends or whatever has happened in the last 24 hours. And I read this at the top of my morning after I post my morning inspiration, right? And I'm a very spiritual person. So after I, I get up and I spend time with Jesus and I post on Facebook, then I read these hot sheets. And it's almost like, well, it's not almost like, it's, it's a flip in the turn of events. Here I am coming from this uh, spiritual, happy, fulfilling space to this darkness and this evil. And when I look at the description, more often than not, and it, it even pains me to say it, black male, 18 to 25, you know, uh, driving this or wearing that, and, and, and it's a constant. The, the regard for human life, essence of neighborhood is lost to a lot of uh, our, our people these days. And a lot of times people find it really hard to um, try and combat that because they don't want that at their doorstep. But I have a question. Oh, oh is it these one, days? One, one second, okay. one right. second, please. And so, um, what the community can do to help, because I know a lot of times people are fearful of retaliation, but you have um, hotlines you can call and ways you can give tips and information without even having to um, expose yourself. You know, because a lot of times, you know, crimes are committed. It's not just you and that person there. A lot of times there's a witness there. And this person is terrified to come forward, understandably so. You know, you don't want your name on a report. You don't want to have to testify in court. But 
and you and you want to feel protected if you do. So I think that um, sometimes uh, remaining anonymous can uh, be beneficial to helping to solve some of these crimes because a lot of times that's how we solve them with the help of the community to be honest you know because we don't get commercial breaks in real life so when things happen and we're out here pounding the pavement trying to figure out what happened and we're giving little to no information i don't know how many times i've read in a report um person standing on the porch heard shots felt pain, discovered they were shot, but is unclear on the information. But if you're part of a gang or if you're involved in, you know, um, some kind of activity that is unlawful, or if you're just an innocent bystander, normally there is somebody around that saw it and they want to help. They want to say something, but they're terrified. And so, and people knowing that you can remain anonymous in reporting information and even in reporting information and you just tired and don't uh, care about who knows that you said something, you know, that's, that's a giant step too, but we have to work together. Yeah. I just want to point out, I think there's no regard for life anymore that the murder, right? I'm I'll be 57 in September. And I don't remember when Detroit has not had a high murder rate, the highest in the nation. It didn't just mm -hmm. become bad. There were way more murders when I was 10 years old than there are now. There are more people, but I'm just saying the murder rate has been bad. And so I, I think it's important for us to try to disentangle what the root causes of the crime are and not look at it as, well, now we don't have regard for life. We have people no. intergeneration. I don't mean you. I mean, that's the way I, th I hear it. That's the way it's typically perceived. And I think every generation, every, every 10 years, I hear the same thing and it's, it stays the same. We have a lot of broken people. And that's where social work needs to come in. And that's where interventions need to come in. And I think that's where some people are saying defund the police and reallocate resources because until we start dealing with brokenness, if we look at crime as just a, violence is just a criminal and not also psychological, mental health reflected, we're not gonna to get to the root causes. What happens to the person is, is so broken. You have so many kids who are aging out of foster care with no parents, kids who grow up in very dire situations and have never really been loved and protected and a gang that says, I will protect you and I will love you and you belong to me. And so how do we prevent a person from needing gang membership to get a sense of love and belonging? So how do we prevent some of the, um, the, 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 the psychological trauma? And so I want to just pivot a minute to Chase because Chase has looked at numbers and looked at our spending. And I think, was it you who said our spending is um, evidence of our morality? So can you come back and tell us about what our morality looks like when it comes to that? Well, yes, but I, I, I kind of actually want to ask Officer Woods first. Um, are, are there things that, that you think that police are asked to do in our city that is not the right realm for policing? So yes and no. And I have to say that because 
um, a lot of times we are put in positions again where we have to make decisions and we're not trained social workers yet we have to act in that capacity we're not uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors but sometimes we have to act in that capacity um, and understanding mental health Donna oh my god I appreciate you putting that on the table because that is one of the uh, major contributing factors to a lot of things that go on today and in the academy you have to understand the academy is six months but the course in all of its essence is literally two years so you take all of that information and jam pack it into six months, not to mention the other things uh, that you have to be learned and certified in as it pertains to defensive tactics and case law and, you know, cultural diversity, men mental health, like all of these different things crammed into six months. And so um, there's a maturity level also with some people like I came on a job very young and it grew me up really fast. But there were still a lot of things that I did not understand. I came on a job, I can't buy liquor, but I can arrest you. That's how young I was. And so, um, to answer your Chase, your Chase question, your question, Chase, is um, we, we do and we don't. You know, it, it's, we're not certified in every capacity to handle those situations, but a lot of times people don't know who else to call but the police in order to get uh, that help. And we know in the uh, black community, we're not big on seeking out a therapist, you know, to talk through some of the underlying issues of, of what's going on. It's like, we know we don't talk about it. We know we don't deal with it. We know, but it'll pass. And to your point, Donna, it's not healthy. And so then you grow again into this resentment or this um, misunderstanding of uh, other people or even how to deal with your anger. Some people don't know how to deal with their anger. So they lash out. You didn't have nothing to do with what they're dealing with at home, yet you suffered a beating because they're internalizing all of this anger that they have. It's a whole lot of things we're not, um, we're, uh-oh, okay, so um, we're, you know, you try and provide all the training that you can, but, you know, you, you do the best with what you got. So I just want to, to, to follow up with that, to, to answer Donna's question earlier, um, so in, in looking at the city's budget, and I do think that city budgets are, you know, moral documents, right? Um, the single department that we spend on in the city of Detroit is the police department. Um, it's about 294 million of our, of our general fund. So our, you know, when we think of where our tax dollars go, you know, this is property taxes, income taxes, casino revenue, this is, this is where we're spending our money. Um, and, I, and I think that for those, no matter if you're using the word defund or reimagine, um, you know, the idea that there are some of these systemic issues that if we, if we were able to fix them, we wouldn't need the police as much, right? So Donna mentioned mental health, um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, are, are, we, are we using our judicial system um, to police poverty, to police sickness, 
Um, and, and how do we rethink that? How do we rethink how our funds are spent so that the police are only being called for, for example, violent crimes, right? So that you're not being asked to respond to homelessness or any of these other sorts of um, societal issues that we don't know what to do, to do with. You know, as a society, we've said that we've shown through our priorities that, you know, we don't care about the poor, that we don't care about those who are suffering through mental illness, that we don't care about members, some, about members of our LGBTQ community. Um, and, you know, when we begin to have these conversations as a community, we can say, we're going to put money behind the things that we actually care about. So, you know, I, I wrote an article, goodness, maybe about a month ago in the Free Press, basically saying that, that it's not up to me, it's not up to Donna, Orlando, or Officer Woods to decide, you know, as individuals, you know, this is where all of the city money should go. But as a community, we need to have a real conversation about budgets, that that should be a community priority to really dig down to think about what is public safety? How do we care about each other? How, do, how does how we care about each other actually show up in the dollars that we spend? Oh, if I could just add to that real quick, Orlando, and I'm so sorry. Um, I think too that um, allocating funds for um, resources is, is paramount. So I agree with you on that. Um, you know, our kids don't have anything to do anymore. You know, all the rec centers are, are shut down. And so all of that energy, you know, is, is displaced. Um, the mental health facilities, you know, it's like a revolving door. They pull you in, evaluate you. Okay, well, you're kind of teetering on this and not so much that. So, okay, here, take this pill, you're out of here. Um, policing is, is more than just an arrest. You know, even when it goes to court, because again, you know, police are blamed uh, for, you know, why didn't this person go to jail? Well, listen, we afford, you know, we, we did our job on this end and now it goes to the courts, but even with the courts, you know, or just the whole process in general, you, you arrest someone for wrongdoing, but there is nothing after that. There's no follow-up. So what still does this person do with all of this displacement of uh, anger or trauma or, or whatever it is that led them to this, this point? There has to be resources in place to better help people. So again, you know, with the uh, social work aspect or recreational aspect or just, um, you know, the support aspect, you know, it, and people are not um, aware of a lot of things that are available to them. So I think that shedding light on those as well um, could be helpful for our community and our citizens. Officer Woods, uh, Chase Cantrell, thank you both for joining us today for I think it is and was a really important conversation to have and one that we must continue having. Chase Cantrell, you already know you have an open invitation. Officer Woods, you have an open invitation to join us anytime you. you're free on Authentically Detroit. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Now, so I know that this is going to go far. So who y'all want to shout out? You want to shout out anybody? Donna, Chase, Officer Woods, who you got? I want to oh. shout out Dr. Bernadette Atueni for her book, uh, for her article research on predatory cities, for her advocacy 
um, around fixing tax foreclosures. I want to shout out Alex Elsup for his analysis. And I want to shout out Chase for his analysis also around what's going on with um, our budgets and really pushing for change in those areas. And then I want to shout out my colleagues at Detroit 21, who are now sitting at a council table and trying to advocate alongside many other people for um, the correct uses for any bond monies that might be generated to fix up our neighborhoods. Uh, Chase or Officer Woods, any shout out? Um, I would like to shout out Authentically Detroit. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I would like to shout out all the men and women in blue that are um, creating change on the front lines, all of our community activists and act advocates that are um, pushing to uh, make Detroit a, a better and safer place. I appreciate you. Um, my mama, no, I'm just like, hey, ma. <laughs> my wife, my family, just everybody that's pushing to create a, a more productive and, and positive Detroit. Awesome. Thank you, Officer Woods. Chase Cantrell, shout out. Man, lots of people to shout out. Um, I was going to say Alex too, Alex Alsup, um, you know, for all of his diligent work. Um, also want to shout out Curtis Lipscomb with LGBT Detroit. Um, the way that, you know, I heard about Officer Woods and all the great work that she's doing um, is through Curtis. So shout out to him. Um, and also, you know, to, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about the Blight Bond. We talked about how community development organizations are doing important work in the city. Um, shout out to Maggie DeSantis, um, who has been working hard to get legislation passed in Lansing that will get more money to community development orgs throughout the state of Michigan. So that has been um, a wonderful thing to watch in the background and she's doing her magic to, to make change happen in our state. Yes. I would like to shout out all of you uh, for being amazing in your respective positions and roles and for playing the role. I think that, you know, Chase, the advocacy that you've been doing and Officer Woods, what you've been doing on the ground on in, in the inside of the department, it is nothing short of, you know, pure bravery um, to put yourself out there, to be a constant advocate, to provide a counter to whatever the normative narrative is, Chase, and for Officer Woods to be willing to come on this show and give us a peek on the inside. We know that it, it's brave and it's not easy uh, being in the positions that you all are in. Donna, of course, fierce advocate uh, who's always gonna release truth. Shout out to all of you uh, for being amazing at what you do. Thank y'all. So that does it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. We will be back next week. Until then, thank you for listening and we want you to catch the wave. Yep, thank you.